So, Dr. Coons, when you sent me a link at the last minute to not talk about Denver and instead talk about what we plan to talk about. Yeah. Right? So this is like we're gonna change course and then we're gonna change course back. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. And then <laughs> little do you, did I, I mean, do you want to talk? You want to no, talk no, about no, Denver? No, have just, you been to Denver? Just, um, I have been to Denver. I'll okay. tell you, the worst airline on the planet is run out of uh, Colorado. That's what I know. Um, what is that Frontier? Frontier, man. Yeah, don't go on. Don't, don't go on Frontier. take Frontier. Yeah. I've been through Denver. I've been to Aurora um, uh, once or twice. But no, no, I'm just trying to like, like to me, the irony of left turn, right turn. Okay, no problem. And then because like it's back on course, back to the stuff we're focused on. We're going to be good, do our jobs. And then wait, 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 the Pope? Okay, <laughs> why not? So, I mean, I, I'm on like a little mini quest uh, locally here. I'm going to start talking about the Antichrist the spirit of the antichrist the man of lawlessness the spirit of lawlessness the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience i'm going to start talking that way just in general about all sorts of stuff including politicians you know just i'm not going to call anyone out by name i'm just going to start instead referring to them as you know oh, well when you see the spirit of lawlessness blah, blah 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 doing this thing right and i think you know that'll stop that whole why do you always call the pope this or that because the fact is if you just watch this guy i mean this it, it doesn't matter what else you agree about or disagree about, you know, Roman Catholic theology. The spirit of lawlessness is at work <laughs> in such a ridiculous and obvious way that every Christian should be able to, to Bible-believing Christian should be able to look at the Pope already and say that this man is uh, speaking for Christ where he ought not, and and that now uh, he's going to go and, and make it really evident, just in case you weren't, weren't clear before. Yeah. What we're talking about specifically today is a response to five, their questions, they're called technically in Roman church law, dubia doubts submitted by a couple cardinals with support from three others about whether the Pope's public statements have changed Roman Catholic doctrine and practice. And what's interesting about these responses is that <laughs> sometimes he says no we haven't changed but but they are actually rather clear that they have changed and i want to look into why but the reason that we're doing it and i, I hope that this this rings with what you're trying to do in talking about the spirit of lawlessness either locally or elsewhere is that i have never ever looked at the roman catholic church as some sort of one-off and i think a lot of people do and they figure that if they are succeeding and not being Roman Catholics, and uh, I say this both for many Protestants, but but also for the enormous religious domination in the United States of America, which is people who are simply no longer Roman Catholic. They're not really anything else. They're just not Catholic anymore. Is that their sole goal is to avoid the things of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so they have all their different reasons for that, and some of it is objection to Christian teaching, you know, actual basic Christian teaching. Some of it is objection to how they were raised and blah, 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 blah. But I think that the very limited insight that people have had into the the Pope as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, for a lot of them is really just, okay, well, I'm not Roman Catholic, so I'm good to go. Right. So if the Roman Catholics are changing on something or if or if something is going on in Rome, then it doesn't really matter to me. But if 
if you think that way, I want you to think about this, that not only, like Pastor Fist said, is the papacy a manifestation of a larger spirit of lawlessness. And I think the mechanics of that will become clear over this hour. But also that the papacy is such a big manifestation of the spirit of lawlessness that if it does something and you're a Christian, you have to deal with it. It's just a it's just a matter of numbers. If we were broadcasting from Greece or Russia or Bulgaria, I would say the same thing, at least locally for us, that you can say both in the United States and internationally. Yeah. That, I, can I, right, can I hop in yeah. on this? Because I think this is the easiest way to explain our position on the Pope being the actual Antichrist. Like actually for real is the end times one that the confessions say. Like the easiest way to see this is that if you're not a Christian, and someone says to you, who speaks for Christianity? They're going to say the Pope. That's what it means. That's why he's the Antichrist. He, he's the he's the guy who speaks for Christianity that shouldn't. All the non-Christians think this is Christianity. And as a result, like Dr. Coons just said, when he talks, all your unbelieving friends are going to be like, well, that's what the Christians think. That, that's the way it's going to happen over yeah. time by distribution. It's not at a moment, right? This is, this is just a matter of influence in, in history. And so we we must deal with this uh, boastful horn. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's a matter of perception and it's a matter of actual influence. I mean, the last time that the Pope changed his liturgical practices, Lutherans who didn't have girl acolytes or communion in the hand or lots of other things also changed. And he didn't make them, but they changed. So the sheer weight of the Roman Catholic Church anywhere, almost anywhere in the world, but whether you have a local instance like the Southern Baptist Convention in the American South or the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece, it's a matter of perception as most important. It's also a matter of weight as actually most influential. Mm -hmm. And so you can't, you can't just dismiss it out of hand and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because number one, you're dealing with other Christians. We we believe that the papacy is the Antichrist. We don't believe that Roman Catholics are not Christians. So it might be easier to just dismiss it all if you are an independent fundamentalist Baptist or something, and you don't believe that a Roman Catholic is actually a Christian. We do. So you're also talking about millions and internationally billions of souls connected to what this man is teaching and the fallout from what he's doing. And if you take, I, I, I want to emphasize again, like we believe the Pope is the Antichrist and therefore all the Catholics are mostly probably Christian because the definition of the man of lovelessness in the Bible, when you get into it, we'll talk to you about this stuff, right? When you yeah. get into it, you can't be the Antichrist unless you're leading all the Christians in lies. Like right. that, that's the only way to be yeah. the Antichrist, right? right. Joe Biden ain't good enough. You know, and, and so <laughs> it's it, it is it is such a strange dogma that we speak again. And that's where this whole idea that instead of trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist by pointing at the Pope as the you know biggest horn of them all, um, just to talk about the spirit of the matter and and let it be evident, uh, you know, let the witness speak for himself, as it were. Um, but continue on, please. Yeah, and so that's that's why we're handling it and. It, it also has to do with something that, as we've talked about the decline of the mainline, and as we've talked about the rise of the non-denominational church, at least in the United States, as well as in certain other parts of the world, as we continue that series, we'll talk about where it went from there, how it's been influential. We're not talking about other Christians. 
in order to talk about how different we are from them. That that has been the standard Lutheran move and certainly the standard confessional Lutheran move for a really long time, partly out of a desire to distinguish ourselves in a competitive confessional environment like the United States. And that could be totally fine. I think the problem there is that generally the problem that the difficulties that each of our churches face really have very little to do with our confessional particularities. If they were matters, for instance, between two Western churches, largely of the doctrine of salvation called soteriology, then that would be one thing. And it would be important to stress those differences over and over and over again. And sometimes that's a problem people have and a question people have. And we explain that at that point. Because the difficulties that we're facing, and you're going to see this as we read, especially the first three dubia here that were submitted by these cardinals, because the problems that we're facing really concern the nature of God's revelation. And in addition to that, how that pertains, especially to the family and marriage and sex, male and female, those are problems that everybody's dealing with. They're not unique to us, or they're not internecine. They're not even particularly Christian in the sense that people are wondering completely outside of Christianity, whether male or female are real or unreal. So they are culturally pertinent problems. I would compare them, therefore, more to the church having to decide what to do about the Muslim invasion of Spain and Portugal, what's now Spain and Portugal, Iberia, back in the early Middle Ages. It's not like that has a whole lot to do with the debates that we had had about predestination and justification in the middle in earlier than that, a couple hundred years earlier, that had rocked pretty much that same part of Christendom. So just because you you in your organization, either as the church in Iberia at that time, or you in your organization as the Lutheran church, are used to dealing with problems in a certain way, or you have familiar enemies, that doesn't mean that the battlefields don't change. If you're on a campaign, you're going to have various battles and the terrain is going to be different for each one of those. And it's it's even going to be different in its focus on different days of a battle. So I think that one mistake that we make when we look at things coming out of the Roman Catholic Church is we think, okay, here's our here's our ancient foe, right? If you read our confessions, our ancient foe is actually Islam. That's where that phrase is used, right? It's not, it's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's not our ancient foe in that way. But you know what I mean. We we've been fighting it for a long time. We're used to fighting it. Reformation Day is coming up. We're used to, you know. But see, the problem here is that the Roman Catholic Church just seems to be reflecting the spirit of the times. It's not actually faithfully opposing us with divine revelation. Right. So what's amazing about Francis is that every time he opens his mouth, it like it gets worse. <laughs> right. So as we as we read through some of these dubia and then his, you know summarize his responses to them, and we'll put the full text in the show notes, you're going to see that he's like, yeah, I do think that. And actually, I also think this, <laughs> and it's get, it, just gets, it just goes from bad to worse. So we're interested in this because this is another group of Christians facing a problem and really failing to handle it well. The day that a Roman Catholic canon not not a priest because they're through an order that is a Marionite Catholic Latin only downtown Rockford said to me, I want to reform the Catholic church. I said to him, me too. 
please continue, Dr. Coons. <laughs> okay. So the the first dubium. So this is this is a formal process. Just to be clear, what where this comes from? It's a formal process where you're like it sounds sus to me, dude. The whole thing. It, well, it's... it is. I mean, it, it literally is. Um, <laughs> is you say now to to me, it doesn't sound suspicious. It sounds naive, but I'm sure there are other purposes, political purposes. I don't understand within that communion, but. You you say to somebody, and specifically here to the Pope, I hear that this is going on on your watch. What are you doing about this? And that this is a formal process. So, I guess in a you know in a in an ideal world that would be that would be nice and that would be good and that would be helpful. It sounds naive to me because what what. Is he possibly going to say, no, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrong. I've been wrong about this stuff. I should have stopped this. And there are lots of things that have gone on under his watch and even in Rome specifically, like the whole Pachamama idolatry incident that are, are not addressed by these dubia. But the first one is about the question, the assertion that the I mean, divine- Is, this, is yeah. this like an impeachment? No, 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 no. no. So, so how often does a dubia happen to a sitting pope? informally things like this of course are like you know hitting the contact us page right formally i am not sure about the frequency yeah the the thing is these were sufficiently public and long standing that i knew about it and and i don't follow <laughs> like some of my usually more liturgically inclined brothers i don't <laughs> i i don't follow roman catholic news very closely it doesn't right. really affect me but I knew that that was going on. So the response was not surprising to me. So it's been a couple of years, certainly. And the, the the characters who submitted these things and the three supporters of them are are well-known conservatives within the College of Cardinals. Okay, which is, well, so the CS does sound like a shot across the, the, the bow. Yeah, a yeah. Bit. It obviously, mm -hmm. yeah, it has, it obviously has a big political significance. And it is a very public way of handling problem, obviously, because in a smaller group, like I think this is something important to say about something like the Missouri Senate or even just speaking sociologically, any smaller communion, obviously way more things are going to be handled informally and personally because people actually know each other. That doesn't mean that Cardinal Sara or Cardinal Burke don't know Francis Bergoglio or I'm sorry, Jorge Maria Bergoglio, but it means that things in a much bigger group are going to be dealt with much more formally, much more often. And that's just something yeah. to understand. It's That's not going to change. If Whether you prefer informal or you prefer formal, that's just the way that human groups in certain sizes are going to operate. So the, the first thing that they ask him is if divine revelation should be reinterpreted based on current cultural and anthropological changes. And that has to do with statements that have uh, things that have gone on. That's really about the religious pluralism, which honestly I think is baked into Roman Catholicism at this point. But it's covertly that first question or doubt is about whether that's okay if we can say that there are multiple ways of salvation or there. So it's kind of a in it in its own way. It's the most vague one because it's the biggest one because it has to do with the sufficiency of the Roman Catholic Church for salvation. It has to do with the sufficiency of Christianity as a revelation given to men 
for their salvation. So it's, it's the biggest one. The response, therefore, is very telling. He begins by saying, the answer depends on the meaning you give to the word reinterpret. Now, of course, you know, if you know anything about human beings, where that's going. So you, you must, you must just see reinterpret the word reinterpret. <laughs> right, exactly. And so what he's going to do, and this is very interesting, the Roman Catholic way out of this is to say, no, the divine revelation doesn't change. But number one, our capacity to grasp it does. And therefore, our understanding of its application also changes. So this is very interesting. So he, he's going to say very clearly, the magisterium, the church's teaching authority, is not superior to the word of God. But it is also true that both the texts of the scripture and the testimonies of tradition, that's with a capital T. So that's going to be all the stuff men must believe that is not actually contained in the scriptures for Roman Catholics, require interpretation in order to distinguish their perennial substance from cultural conditioning. So a couple of examples are the Bible, as well as popes in the past, have said that slavery is okay. Similarly, at the end of that same paragraph, the same applies to certain considerations in the New Testament regarding women. And what he the scripture references there involve head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Timothy 2, it involves Paul's prescriptions about women working at home and loving their families and stuff like that. And other texts of scripture and testimonies of tradition, and here for me is the is the take-home phrase, that cannot be materially repeated today. So watch what happened. You went from, well, it has to be, it has to be interpreted properly, right? Which is what he's going to say he means by it depends on what you mean by reinterpret, right? So it starts out as a matter of interpretation. It's fine, but it has to be interpreted properly. And on a logical basis, I can be suspicious of that, but that's not wrong. It, of course, things have to be interpreted properly. It all depends on what you mean by properly, right? But what, see how that slides in his answer from interpreted properly to cannot be materially repeated today. And what he means by material... It's quite a phrase. Well, yeah. Okay. So number one, you're not supposed to say it out loud. That's the verb, repeated. You don't say it out loud anymore. So obviously those texts that he references, Exodus 21 about slavery and 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 on women are not should not be read, right? Repeated, said out loud. In addition to that, materially doesn't just mean those texts because the material of something as opposed to its form has to do with its substance or its topics or what is it actually talking about, right? So I could say formally, I won't repeat it because I won't read the text in church. Materially is actually much broader than that. Yeah, practice it. Yep. So what you're doing is, I mean, you can watch this rhetorically, but you should also watch it in its material or substance, is that rhetorically what you're doing is you're saying, you always block off and you say, we're not changing. But then at the same time, the way that you change is that substantially you just you just silence what has become inconvenient or difficult. And now, and you could have taken lots of other things besides slavery and women's head coverings and women's roles in the family. You could have put lots of things in there. And interestingly, he hasn't yet, despite what's going to happen in the rest of the document, said anything about gay marriage, which is which is really a lot of the question. But you just you silence all that stuff that's where scripture has become uncomfortable or inconvenient. You don't deal with it. 
and you you're gonna I guess you're gonna substitute something in its place. Um, and his reasons for that will become clear, but the what's gonna happen first is that anything where it seems like, okay, great, thank you, Pope Francis. I notice that you're actually changing. He heads that off in, in the very next paragraph when he quotes Aquinas, always a good trick with a conservative Catholic, right? <laughs> it's like quoting Peeper with a Missouri Synod Lutheran, right? So this is the trick. So, well, but I have a Peeper quote, right? I read the I read the Orthodox theologians. He quotes Aquinas, and he has Aquinas saying, "The more one descends to matters of detail, the more frequently we encounter defects." Okay, that's also very logically true. But what happened here is that he took something that is pretty blindingly clear, which is. Even if you're Roman Catholic, the Bible is the word of God and should be read for the benefit of the faithful. Okay. Pretty much any Christian agrees on that in, to one degree or another at this point. Okay. Things that in previous eras were fine and were read or they were read and you can do what you want with Exodus 21 or you can do what you want with head coverings, and you can say the head covering is long hair. You can say the head covering is a cloth on top of the hair or something. But guess what? You have to deal with it because it's in there. Now, you're going to take the fact that you don't like something and describe it as mere detail. It's in the Bible, but it's just a detail. So this is this is the first thing you're going to do. That's going to open up his answers to the other things that are more about practice and marriage, but that's really important to say at the outset is that the way that the church gets rid of the word of God is not by saying we're getting rid of the word of God. And if the listeners have been tracking with this in the discussion of fundamentalism and modernism is that no modernist at the time said explicitly, we're getting rid of the word of God. They alter their stance to it, right? And eventually what that's going to result in, whether it's liberal Protestantism or Roman Catholicism or whatever is that the church is then going to decide whether the word of God gets to talk. Now, I think logically that potential was always there in the immense room that Roman Catholic popes have for deciding how the word of God is going to be taught. That's that's always been a problem logically. It just perhaps has not been quite so ferociously applied using the spirit of the age to the Bible maybe ever before. Maybe. <laughs> okay. You know, polygamy was fairly widely practiced in pagan European societies, at least in, in, in some parts of Northern and Western Europe. And it's not like the missionaries at that time said, well, you know, the Pope says polygamy is fine. So you, you guys keep going for it. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Right. But now the, the capitulation of the spirit of the times is really kind of remarkable to watch. Yes, the worship of the spirit of lawlessness unto the beast, uh, the need to bow down and scrape the knee between its great majesty and to, to lick its feet as the false prophet you know, waddles about in his robe. So, you know, the thing that I, I really love about this topic is that I have no idea whether or not our Roman Catholic listeners hate me or not, but I kind of think they might after this. But I hope it's the kind of hate you have for your brother after he beats you at something and not the kind of hate you have for people who want to destroy your civilization. But I'm just going to, I just got to say, like, yeah. I, I mean, scripture alone, like you can be like, 
the Bible's it can't be alone. You need tradition. Okay, okay, slow down. I know, I know. We all know because because we got three of these alones, you know, dude. Right? So like, slow down. Okay. But the point of scripture alone isn't me and my Bible craziness like you want to dismiss it all with. Is the fact that once you detach yourself from the anchor, only insanity remains, and scripture is the anchor. And this is the same issue now. Yeah. Just working itself out. You know, I mean, it's like Lutherans, we should be over here with popcorn, you know, like watching this. Like, hey, what you all, what you all still papist Catholics to do? We independent Catholics feel like we should work together, maybe. Hey, yeah, I mean, fight I, back. I, I, I don't, I see it more like they build a house on the beach and a hurricane <laughs> is coming and I'm just down the street. And so my house is just going to flood later because. Because number two is the one that is going to get really rough if what he's suggesting is actually carried out. And that is the dubium regarding the assertion that the widespread practice of blessing same-sex unions. And and they do mean that. Like, you can go to a Catholic church, many Catholic churches, obviously not all, but you can go to a Catholic church and get your gay marriage blessed. Or that, as as Francis has actually defended in public before that, you know, same-sex unions should be should be fine as a matter of civil law in various countries. So that's the question, or that's the doubt concerning his his words and his deeds. And Francis's response is again, what he's gonna do is you you build a fence and you say, around this fence, or I'm sorry, inside this fence is all the stuff that you conservatives like. It's it's all still in there. It's fine. Right. And that only such a union, which is exclusive, stable, and indissoluble between a man and a woman, naturally open to procreation, only this union can be called marriage. So nothing else can be called marriage. Okay. And that has a unique essential constitution that requires an exclusive name, not applicable to other realities. And that that is a very typical, he's just using relatively recent, but but still nonetheless traditional Catholic language. Catholics have generally been better at clearly defining things than Lutherans have. And that's what he's doing right there. He's just citing. But they're magi, dude. They're absolute magi at it. It's like they they just, yeah, we were well, just good once. I, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think, yeah, clear thought should not be the, should not be the preserve of one part of the church. But, but in this case, it's, so he says, it is undoubtedly much more than a mere quote ideal. For this reason, the church avoids any type of rite right or sacramental that might contradict this conviction and suggests that something that is not marriage is recognized as marriage. The big thing here is that he goes, however, in our relationships with people, we must not lose the pastoral charity, which should permeate all our decisions and attitudes. So this is the really big change. And if you're a, a pastor, you understand that that's the way this adjective has also taken on a life of its own been warped yeah is that number one an answer to the church's practice has primarily to do with the cultivation of ongoing relationships with people i think saint paul who rarely spent more than a couple months anywhere would probably disagree with that to some degree <laughs> is that your you know your, the faithfulness of your ministry is judged by the the niceness of your relationships. That's not even possible for everybody. Please, please consult Jeremiah on that. 
But also, I think more than that, is that the phrase pastoral charity means essentially that you do not tell people no. Limp-wristed. Yeah, because he goes on this way. The defense of objective truth is not the only expression of this charity. And that has to do with a definition of the church's operation, especially of her ministers, as not specifically engaged in the proclamation of truth. It also includes kindness, patience, understanding, tenderness, and encouragement. Some of those obviously are fruit of the spirit. You see how tricky this gets. It's a little clearer here. Therefore, we cannot be judges who only deny, reject, and exclude. And I think what's happening here is that attitudes are vastly more important in his thinking than truth. And the important thing is to be seen having the correct attitude. I mean, ironically, that doesn't involve an attitude that would actually correct someone who is going to hell in the love of his sin. It involves being affirming within the bureaucratic boundaries set out by the church of anything that you possibly can. So he's going to then do something that on a, <laughs> on a sheer management level is extremely chaotic, which is that on a case-by-case -case basis, people can now determine how to handle these situations and whether there can be rights that bless things that are not marriages. So that's going to go parish to parish to parish, maybe diocese to diocese, but maybe not in every diocese. You know, I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of middle management offices that are going to have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and, and, right. You know, this is going to grind things forward, and there's going to be you know old documents that got to be revisited and updated, mm -hmm. and uh, you know paper supplies to be ordered and grounds to be kept and. You know, so the, the machine that is uh, the oldest bank in the world, to my working knowledge, still functioning, um, you know, presses on with its need to to press a feminine nurture into the name pastor uh, by blessing gross stuff. Because, you know, the Bible, uh, you know, it, it's hard to understand sometimes and some people don't like what it says. What's the third thing? The third thing is that and this sounds like inside baseball, it's not. They're going to have a synod on their own functioning, a synod on synodality. It really is that <laughs> silly. Okay. Okay. And the conservatives don't like this because it runs what it, what it's basically trying to do, for example, and this has to do I with- I can't the, wait. In like 20 years, we're going to have one, dude. Just yeah. watch. Missouri is going to have a synod well, on synod. <laughs> this has to do with the fourth one, which is a question about women's ordination. Because- oh, because he says, again, in, in, in number four, he's going to block out, no, we're not going to ordain women. But yes, because of syndality, women are going to contribute to all the discussions about what is the doctrine and practice of the church. And that that is how in number three, in the dubium number three, synodality actually functions. So this is under 3B. The church is a mystery of missionary communion. That's a quote from some document. doesn't have a source. But this communion is not only affective or ethereal, it necessarily implies real participation. So what that's going to do is democratize every level of the church's functioning if necessary. Mm. And this is this is visible. I mean, Francis has hired women for all kinds of positions that you used to only hire priests for. Same thing with laymen, but 
particularly women, have been notable. Not only the hierarchy, but the entire people of God. That's a very Vatican II phrase. It's all over the modern catechism of the Catholic Church. In various ways and at different levels can make their voices heard and feel part of the church's journey. In this sense, we can say that synodality as a style and dynamism, again, see how attitude or impression is much more important. I mean, there's nothing about doctrine in here, is an essential dimension of the church's life. On this point, St. John Paul II said some very beautiful things in one of his papal. I don't think that's an encyclical because it's in Latin, um, it's in Italian, so it must be some other writing of his. What's going to happen there, however, is that you'll notice, obviously, in a group of any size, unless you're talking about a single congregation, what that's really going to mean is that, like American politics, people with money and access will be able to participate. So what we're going to do is in a way that's going to be impressive to modern people, because modern people have a reflexive love of democracy, reflexive because trained, but nonetheless, so deeply ingrained it is reflexive. Like we're... Yeah. I mean, this, this sounds good. This sounds nice. It sounds like you're listening to people instead of dismissing them. Right. And so all of these attitudinal things, the thing about preferring attitudes to teachings doesn't mean that you eliminate one or the other, right? So in anything we're saying today, if I am heard to say that you can just say whatever you want with no affect and with incredible coldness and without respect to human beings you're talking to, I'm not saying that. And I say that because I would say that the most common reaction that you and I receive, not from the listeners, but from people who periodically hate listen to the podcast is suspicion. And that's always coming out of a place of a disinterest in what we're actually saying. So that's why I want to be clear about what I'm actually saying. But what you can see here is not that affect or thinking about human beings when you talk is, you know, just something to keep in mind. He's saying what that's going to do is that your relationship to some guy who's living in a gay marriage or something is going to overrule truth. Because practically what will happen, and he knows this, he's not a stupid man. He certainly didn't get where he was in life by being stupid. What it means practically is that this will open up avenues of access for highly placed people over time to gradually change the Roman Catholic Church, which he certainly understands as a savvy man is going to take a lot of time to change. Yeah, I think I think even, I mean, I agree with you completely. That even before you get there, is there a recognition that if they hold the line, they're going to lose a lot of money? There are far too many families with active practicing individuals cohabiting, whatnot, and otherwise, uh, for them to come down hard on that. And right. so, in order to allow for, you know, the very pious Roman Catholic lady who you know goes to mass and says her rosaries and listens to her podcasts, uh, to have her brother, you know, come to Thanksgiving dinner. They have to work this out. And of course, this would be what the elites would like to be done eventually, because a few more islands where they can do stuff would be what they're after. I, I, Please go on. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go on, go on. So I because I, I think the I think the issue here, if you're not Roman Catholic, is it is at least twofold. Number one is to understand that the spirit of the times necessarily prefers affect and appearance over truth that you just have to be prepared for that. You have to expect that. 
And I don't think that means that you have to live your life with some kind of rage or incessant suspicion about other human beings. It's just something you have to keep in mind. Like it, just because you could die while driving a car, it doesn't mean you never get in a car again. But it means that you know you could die while doing this, whereas it's kind of hard to die while drinking a glass of orange juice at home, right? So you could stay safe in your house all the time, or you could drive a car and just understand what's going on. So what you're dealing with is that the spirit of the times is particularly obsessed with giving an impression of popularity or democratic openness, while of course, continuing to build a system that has anything but democratic openness. And I say this because if you say, you know, there's a, here, here's a, here's a Roman Catholic couple who are daily communicants. They go every single day. Well, guess what? Those are like your most conservative people in the Roman Catholic church. They would never want any of this stuff that mm. Francis is making available to them in their churches. They don't want any of it. They want things that he won't give them like wide access, widely available access to the Latin mass. He won't give that to them. I mean, especially in what they call the extraordinary form, meaning the Tridentine mass, not the Latin form of the Vatican II or Novus Ordo mass, the ordinary form is what they call it. So they want, there are things, if he, if he were actually, let's say, a, a populistic figure, there are things he could give the people who go every day who are actually upholding his own church's teachings, but he's not giving that to them because he knows better than they do or, or whatever, right? Because the spirit of the times is not only a spirit of affect or look, right? Everybody is more or less faking something on Instagram as it were, but the spirit of the times is also obsessed with mouthing democracy while disregarding the people's welfare. So pastoral charity would be charity, you would think, aligned with the good pastor, the good shepherd, who tells people the truth. But what Francis means by pastoral charity is that you, you don't necessarily tell them the truth because tenderness and truth are actually are different nouns just in that paragraph that we read. And what you're going to do instead is you're going to kind of let them sit where they are and bless whatever you can. And that's going to mean that you have the appearance of helping and of loving when you are doing the opposite. So you're a, you're a heart surgeon, but instead of operating on the person's heart and making it functional again, you say, you know, your heart is really great and and the way that it's working you know it's it's limited i you know i i can't i'm not allowed to come out and say that it's a healthy heart but you know i i can say that it's a heart that's operating right now and you just don't tell them how soon they're going to die so if you do that then there's another part to this obsession with affect which is a very very deep desire to look utterly normal and down to earth while being the opposite. So you may have noticed that generally, not just the Roman Catholic church, our elites will do things like, you know, put videos of themselves on social media platforms, wearing sweatpants 
and pretending to just be normal people. And and maybe they really do just wear sweatpants at home. I mean, who am, I, I don't know and, and who am I to care, really? But the point is that the affect has to be, I'm just like you. The effect, right? So not how it looks, but what it actually does. The effect, however, is that they are more high-handed than anybody. That Joseph Ratzinger, for example, who whose affect was totally different, highly traditional, even kind of arcane and archaic at times. Joseph Ratzinger had much more respect for the average person actually filling a pew on Sunday than Bergoglio does. So what's going to what's going to occur here is that things will be opened up and then people with money and time and interest to access the papacy will matter a lot more than men who were ordained and have been sworn to uphold the things that the papacy is supposedly there to propagate, right? The capital F, faith. So this is very much in line with the spirit of the times. And that connects to the second point. And that is not just that I don't really think haughtiness is the way to deal with this, but I, I also think that you have to realize this is going to happen to everybody. If it's not already happening, it's going to happen to everybody. The permutations of it are going to vary by the group, right? So if the LCMS is going to try to bless same-sex unions, of course, our processes are not the same and our decision makers are not positioned in the same ways. And it would probably only be covered by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, right? It's not going to be covered by the BBC probably. But you don't escape the spirit of the times. You either you either capitulate to it or you fight against it, but you don't get to escape it. You're, you're not just going to be preserved because at some point in the past, you made a better decision. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Nice. Right? Because I, I, I think especially where Roman Catholics are concerned, that's, that's the Lutheran reflex is that because we sided with a truer understanding of scripture, or we came down on the right side of in perennial debates in Western Christendom about what Augustine really meant, or however you want to come at the problem of the Reformation, right? All kinds of different ways to say it. Because of that, now we're okay. Well, that already wasn't true. Already in the 17th and 18th century, the entire Western church faced a fight against reasons claimed supremacy over divine revelation. And most Lutheran state churches failed that test. Whereas the Roman Catholics did not. Now, there were Lutherans that survived, but you see how that's a fragment of a fragment, right? Like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod from one perspective is a loyal remnant from the Saxon state church. That's right. Okay. A loyal um, remnant a remnant of an abject failure that is <laughs> in the in the position of abject failure when compared to the worldly success of the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. Well, not even okay. Not even worldly though. Like I yeah, mean, sure. Yeah. We can. The we people, can. There's more of the people that are actually Christians that are Roman. They're all at the pro life events. Is all Roman Catholics? Look yeah. I mean, you know, in in talking about how the Roman Catholic Church had changed its understanding of Scripture in the 20th century, which we talked about back when we talked about Vatican II. In talking about that, Robert Preuss, okay, so I'll just, you know, lay out my priors. And if somebody wants to 
you know, debate me on this. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy to debate, but I, I, do, I don't think that unless you are a professional systematician, you've read as much about these things as I have. Robert Preuss conceded that the best ally we had in defending the inerrancy of scripture before 1943 was the Roman Catholic Church yeah, right. because they faced the challenge. And this is a very similar thing to what I said earlier about the, the challenges concerning the family or the challenges about the orders of creation that now everybody faces. Well, guess what? In the 17th and 18th century, everybody faced a challenge about reasons bid for supremacy over divine revelation. And the Roman Catholic Church handled that challenge better than most of us. So that doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean that because we did something good in the 16th century, we're gonna make it through this one. Or if we make it through this one, perhaps you have the same winnowing effect that you had in the 18th century, where by the rolling into the 19th century, the reason you have something called the awakening in German or the confessional revival, both in Lutheran churches, but also in some reformed churches, the Dutch have their own version of this and so on. The French have their own version in the, in the Huguenot church because you have to have that. Why? Because everything else is moribund because everybody else has capitulated. So I'm trying to talk about this before we get to that point so that it's not just that we know it's coming, but that we know it's here. Because if we capitulate, well, now I'm going to have to figure out, okay, well, what are we going to do now? You know, how are we going to handle this now? Because every time you have one of these splintering effects too, now you have a whole other group. I'm not even speaking about denominations, but like confessional or ecclesial tendencies spread yeah. across denominations. Now you have to figure out, okay, well, what... What is that? And is that okay? And, and and am I in communion with that or what's going on or whatever? You know, this is, this is why, I mean, the papacy fails to be a rock without the right confession, which is all that the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope says. We can handle the Pope according to human law, if you want, as long as he confesses the right doctrine. See, the confession of doctrine is the absolutely bedrock foundational thing for the whole church. So when in entire parts of the church, and especially the largest part of the Christian church today, the Roman Catholic church, as soon as part of, you know, the sand underneath a certain kind of a house starts to give away, or you could think of, you know, mudslides in California or something, well, that's a danger for everybody else on the hill, or that's a danger for everybody else in the town. So just because the guy on the beach got flooded doesn't mean that you're safe. And it's going to be a problem for everybody. So I want to talk about it to start out because they're dealing with things. The fifth doubt is has to do with their system of confession. And I, I don't think it's terribly pertinent. But the fourth one about the ordination of women, this is one where I think this mental trick is going to be really important, especially for people who position themselves as conservative going forward. And not in a good way, but I, I think it's going to be frequently used and it is frequently used, is that what you're going to do is you're going to say, well, no, I'm, I'm LCMS or I'm Southern Baptist or I'm PCA or I'm Roman Catholic. So the ordination of women is off the table. But what about everything else? Right. And they actually use it. Francis uses the phrase that the, the priesthood, their ministry it is a, is a function not a dignity. Again, that could be that could be fine if understood the right way. But one way to, and this, so this has to do with interpretation, 
one way to understand what a church is actually doing is not just to look at what it says on paper, because that's the stuff that they bracket off and that he brackets off at the beginning of every single answer. Because he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, he knows the man is old enough to have grown up in effectively a completely different church. Okay, so I'm not speaking organizationally. I'm speaking doctrinally and liturgically. And it was a different place, right? No, this this is pretty calculated stuff, man. I mean, oh, is... I mean, he's he's really good at this. Hey, I have a conspiracy theory. The Pope okay. is evil and is trying to change the world for the worse. Who's <laughs> <laughs> <was> with me? <laughs> I, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting that he's from Argentina because it, th- that is such a study. I mean, we did Argentina years ago we, now. We did. But it's such a study in promised, apparently for the benefit of the masses, decline. Yeah. You know, 100, 120 years ago, it's not only the eighth wealthiest country on earth, it also is actually prosperous, widely distributed wealth, a big destination, especially for Spanish and Italian immigration, especially Italian immigration. It is a nice place to live. And now, I mean, it's a, it's an immigration destination in the same sense that the United States is an immigration destination. You know, it seems like people are rushing into the casino before before the doors finally goes i don't know what they think they're going to get here like do you want do you want to work at dollar general like maybe that's better but but maybe not than wherever you came from but it's a destination for peruvians and and bolivians and venezuelans and colombians in the same way the us is but the standard of living and the spirit of the people is totally depressed i mean that's why they have their own sort of trump like clownish figure millet running for president right now with many of the same rhetorical moves and and a lot of the same affect that Trump has when he's especially when he's doing rallies and Mille will do that in in TV programs but the the thing is in Bergoglio's own lifetime not only is the Roman Catholic Church I I would contend almost unrecognizable compared to the you know the mass the day he was baptized Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. Almost unrecognizable. In addition, his country is a great study in leftist promises being issued because they have had in Peronism and then in its leftist form, Kirchnerism, they have had people promising to help you and promising that they care about the little guy forever. And it has never worked. <laughs> it has gone from bad to worse overall throughout his lifetime and even before his lifetime. So this is something to ponder both for church and for state is that in order to avoid certain things sitting in front of us, capitulation, especially to challenges about the orders of creation, I don't really think it's that hard to come up with good examples of what happens if you take a certain path, because we're not actually dealing with unprecedented matters. We might be dealing with unprecedented ways of posing questions or specific details to those matters, but we've been trying to remake the family. We've been trying to redistribute all income. We've been trying to democratize everything about the church and the state and the family for a long time in the Western world. We're not dealing with utterly unprecedented, strange things and wondering, 
boy, I that could maybe work out. I don't know. I think it'd be, well, I, I find it helpful to reframe it and stop thinking that somehow I have to prepare for what will happen if and when communism went. <laughs> and we'll realize that it won in 1945 or so. It did. Its own form. It's it's a westernized form. It's different, but it, the mentality is still here. And I think I think you could make the case that it's always been here. And so you've had these two poles of the globe, whether it's Russia or China, and then the US, two sides of the planet, jockeying for the capacity to control the, the greatest number of people while promising them that this is for their good, which is a new tactic, communism, as opposed to, I don't know, just conquering you and making you slaves, right? Which is kind of the older tactic, pre-Christendom kind of stuff. Just to see that then here, like, like like America, the beautiful, yes, please, may freedom ring, but do do recognize that the distinction between the way the Republican Party operates and what Marx would have them do is there isn't one. I mean, they, 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 you know, we're 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 there. We've been there. Uh, we have some different dynamics in the change. We aren't what Russia was when they became the Soviet Union, and we're not what you know the various disparate peoples of China were. But when when they were unified together in the Republic, quote unquote, Republic over there, but we are a people group that has had then our our culture gradually uh, educated away from us in order to bring about promises of our universal life together, call it social security or something all on the name of a bigger brother, you know, you know, captain America and all this. And it, just to acknowledge that. Oh, okay. And look, we still got freedom of speech. Whew. Okay. then. Well, let's, let's just be the best, not quite Americans, more like Christians living in America. We can be. And I'm not. I'm not trying to knock the flag. Uh, in, in a sense, I'd like to recover the flag. I think, Doctor Kuntz, Adam, you, you agree that you know, we're our our goal with this show is, in fact, to become and be good citizens, and not to decry old glory as a as a false symbol, but to then recognize that at the moment it kind of is being flown as a false symbol. And if we want it back, then then we have to like acknowledge that it's it's done a lot of evil here. And, and it's done it openly yeah. and, and clearly and with with lies that are not lies because they're right in front of our faces. I, I, I talked a bit there, but I want to um, jump back on this uh, yeah, sure. affect concept you got. Nation yeah. of posers, baby. Nation of posers. Everything about American lifestyle because of the impact of the photo Right. I mean, it becomes the talking picture, but it's the photo and it just it just boils over and we become completely, completely obsessed. And I really do use that mean in the demonic sense, just driven by what others might think about us. And I just I just don't think that it was like that quite before. I'm sure there have been vain people at all times in history. Yeah. Yeah, um, sure. You right. know, but, but, Obviously. but there is, there is something about the need to look a certain way and, and worse, the belief that if I can look a certain way, then I will become a certain thing. And that transformation identity movement goes a lot deeper than the medical maltreatment and all this, right? That yeah. there's a lot right. of people trying to be things they're not and posing 
as a result. And what results from that generally is disappointment because acting isn't that great unless you got an audience cheering and no one's <laughs> no one's cheering for you, right? And so the other side of this, I think, is to recognize that where the spirit of the age is wanting to get you to precedent how you look as if it were how you feel, that what Christianity and the created order just have before you always is a, a truth that is. And when you engage what is, particularly with a tongue and a mind and hands that prefer truth over what you see, right? Well, well then the effect of that is not a pose at all, but a posture. And and that uh, the distinction, uh, Adam. I mean, I think that's that's really profound. And you know, I just played with it a little poetically there. But affect. How much, young men who listen to the show, how much of what you do when you go out and you try to be a man is affect right now? And just just believe it's probably eighty percent. And some of that's natural development, but some of that's you don't know, and so you're trying. Yeah. Oh, and, and, yeah, yeah. And, and the solution here is that you know the going out with a look or a word for others isn't where you're going to find who you are. You're going to find who you are in your hands, first off, your mistakes, second off, your father's face, thirdly. And then, of course, you know the identity you have when Jesus calls you by name you know, redeems all these things. But fleeing from from what your body is, what the seed of your father is into a Gnostic world of search for identity, that's going to just end up in, again, endless despair. Whereas there is, there is a posture that you inherit and, and that goes double fold, right? Law and gospel uh, from a father of earth and father in heaven. Good. The, the question of affect is particularly connected to a at least democratic pose, whether the system is explicitly democratic, like, you know, certain, I mean, our church, Southern Baptist convention, blah, 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 your county election, right? Or whether it's only rather purportedly democratic, which is the way at a certain scale with enough money involved uh, or and or power, you know, the Roman Catholic Curia or the College of Cardinals either of those or American federal politics and and pretty much state politics, even probably for Rhode Island and Delaware. Affect dominates because at a scale where you're really dealing with truly practically anybody, it's really all you have. And its growth or wow. its dominance is simply a function of scale. I can't really have an affect with my wife or my father because they actually know me. Scale is too small. When the scale is too big, but you're still conceding individual judgment about the situation and about the person and, and probably election or re-election, affect is all you have. They're voting for affect. Amen. They like yeah. affect. <laughs> right. That's why, that's why Trump's dancing. Yeah. So that is a function of systems that I think are basically set up to fail. And I have my own account that we are going through in my circuitous way 
of how that arose in American politics specifically, but it's a function in any system of decision-making and authority of what is always, let's just be honest, a pretense that the guy way at the top cares about you. It's it's just fake. And And why would he? I mean, he could care about you in a really generic way, but he doesn't personally know or care about you. And that's okay. But the fact that he has to pretend that he does is going to govern the dominance of affect and look, whether it's photographic or videographic or whether it's any other form of affect, that's going to predominate at scales where everything is determined by what some little guy purportedly thinks. And media is just a part of that ecosystem of seeming and not being because being doesn't, it just doesn't matter in such a system. That's the way it goes. It doesn't, the people, it doesn't matter if they know what's good for them. It matters if they think that you know what's good for them. That's why affect dominates. Into the bargain. Can we just kill all the people and harvest the votes and then... Like they can all be dead, and we just harvest their votes. Well, I, it, it, it's definitely it's definitely more efficient. We've and we've talked about that. Is that you? Do, you don't have to fake votes if you can harvest ballots by some other means. I mean, you just you know it. It definitely is more efficient. You know, real Machiavelli hours today here on the podcast. But the other the other thing I was going to say in re- in response to what you said is that it, that ecosystem of affect creates an obsession with affect by individual people about whom no one cares. So there's there's like a particular sadness to it too, because nobody cares that you're pretending to be that. Only you care. Whereas when you have human relationships, you can just accept that you do sound like your dad when you talk or the way that you sit in chairs is reminiscent of your grandfather. You can accept created limits to your life rather than being obsessed with affect. And affect goes in all kinds of directions. You're, you, you already have, and you will have in church and in state, people whose affect is trad or reactionary or whatever adjective you want that would resist somebody like Bergoglio, okay? or would resist Kamala Harris, okay? You're going to have that affect. You have it in Josh Hawley from Missouri, very much so. You have it to some degree in Matt Getz, who is not terribly believable as any kind of trad. You sort of had it in Lauren Boebert, who was a certain Western kind of trad. (laughs) No, it's definitely not, as if anybody was supposed to be surprised by that. The reason that there's a gap also between trad seeming and trad being is because affect is what you have within electoral politics. That's what there is. That's what people vote for. Very, very rarely are they voting for somebody who is what he seems to be. And even rarer, does that person remain what he is after elected? All kinds of people said this about Ulysses Grant. He's like a great, humble guy, very unassuming for all that he achieved in the Civil War. Then when he's elected, he goes crazy because he doesn't know how to run things at that scale. He's not actually capable of it. And he seemed to be the savior of the nation and was acclaimed as such. And instead, he gave the nation up to tons and tons and tons of corrupt people. Okay. So 
you're dealing with a situation where within the systems that we have set up, affect is going to dominate. And when affect dominates, either on a corporate level for a group of people or on a personal level for the individual, that means that lies dominate. Just necessarily, it means that lies dominate because, because seeming is not being. It just isn't. That's why deeds are a test of things that words are not in the scriptures. That's why, right? Because it it's able to test being rather than seeming. So for your own part or for your own life, this is where you need to be able to ask yourself as a group, a church, a church body, a whatever, a Roman Catholic church needs to ask itself tough questions, brutal questions, right? And if it doesn't do that, this is something that Jason Broughton and I talked about vis-a-vis Musk on Jason's, I was going to say his podcast, but I wasn't on any podcast with Musk. Jason's podcast. sad that I missed that because, you know, I I got a thing for Musk. (laughs) Well, I'm reading the, I'm reading the new biography. So maybe we can talk about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But is that Musk does this with systems. So he just, you know, runs into Tesla, which is of course started by other people, started usually by engineers as these kind of places are. And he's like, why do you have to do that? But when you're obsessed with seeming, which there's an element of that to Musk too, obviously he's a media personality. When you're obsessed with seeming or when seeming is running your actual system of say, building a car or sustaining a church or sustaining your family or examining why you say the things that you say in the way that you do. Okay. When that's the case, that just means that you're going to fail, but it will seem to you and it will seem to other people that you're not. And then they're going to be shocked when you do. Now, if they're smart, they shouldn't be so shocked, nor should you, but it's going to fail because you are not pushing yourself to ask actually incisive questions. You're pushing yourself to continue seeming. And that's the way of death. I mean, Satan, think about this. Satan clothes himself as an angel of light. What's the essence of what Satan does? He seems, right? He seems to be something. He seems to be nice, seems to be helpful. He's not right? He's the ultimate in seeming. And that is the absolute dominance of, of affect. So the idea that, you know, you're, you're living inside of this big casino all the time, you know, the sky is just sort of a, you know, movie make up, up there, you know, it's faked. They did a good job, but, but we're all inside this big building. And the one thing that's most important is that the show must go on. And so everyone, everyone's got to, you know, get to food and they got to get entertained, of course. And yeah. I certainly got to put their money into the machine to keep the machine going, but the, the show must go on. And what that means is that everyone's just totally hooked on primetime because, because every night and, and first thing in the morning too, and then really around the clock, if you care, there is entertainment and, and it's so real that everyone thinks it's real you know they they mm-hmm. think that there was a guy named donald trump who is in charge of the country and did whatever he want for a while like four years and changed all this stuff and then now they think there's a guy named joe in charge and that that's you know so i i could belabor it but can you see this casino image with like you know everyone's stopping to watch these shows yeah and you know and then the commercials come on and no one no one realizes that this this isn't this isn't real now, I think there's really a DC and there's really a Joe Biden, right? 
Um, but I think I, I, I think that edgy, they're edgy yeah, opinions. I know, watch, yeah. watch me, huh? Uh, <laughs> I think that they're a lot less real in terms of their impact on my day-to-day life than they'd like to believe they are. Sure. There's a couple things they could do to blow a lot of stuff up at once. But more and lar- by and large, they're they're so unaware of who I am and where we are that as long as they just stay away, you know, we might be able to fix some things out here. And and so anyway, you know, the show must go on and be in the concept here that that being stuck in watching American politics, when if you can pull your head out of that enough to be like, oh, it's a TV show. Oh wow, it's a really good TV show. Oh wow, I'm watching like a TV show. Oh wow, I should stop watching TV. That's about what my trajectory was, right? And I would encourage you to to follow it as well because uh, this machine that they get you pumped into, where you very gradually over a lifetime, you know, put your put your baby on it when they're two, right, or less, you gradually have the ability to discern reality and and dreams pumped out of you. They just suck it out of your head over time. And a big part of it is the the hyper screaming politics all the time, and then then you know now this here is some soap. Now this, the movie you want to see, right? And they just, it's its man, Neil Postman. I'm preaching Neil Postman now. Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the dominance of entertainment has a really complex relationship to affect because it both creates the circumstances under which you believe stuff like that instead of being influenced by your family or influenced by things in front of your eyes or influenced by the way that people are right around you or whatever. But it also, so it it creates that environment, but then it also produces it because we believe that if it is in front of our eyes, and this has been the power of smartphones is to create the same phenomenon. I mean, people made such a big deal out of cable cutting and the rise of streaming and stuff like that. Functionally, spiritually, it doesn't matter. No. All that it did was intensify the problem because it puts what purports to be real in front of you. And it the thing is, it does create real despair in you, or it creates a real sense that you go to mass every day and your church hates you or whatever the case may be. And what that's going to prevent you from doing, if you allow it, is from effecting change within those institutions because, or, or where because you, you feel hopeless. Yeah, or, or where you are. You know, you know, you're, you're trying to do something and you get a text message from somebody and you know them, but not that well. And it's a thing that, you know, you didn't ask them to do it. It's not positive. It's not negative. It's not positive. And what, five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes? What do you guys spend on it? Right. And then you spend on it. And then where that time go? So the way these things compound you know, in our lives is, is really quite something. And one thing that, that you turn me on to, and it's your doctoral stuff um, on Paul and modeling years ago was how much of human behavior is entirely a matter of just being in the presence of others who act that way. And that if you want to be different, you know, just be around people who act the way you want to act and you're going to end up acting that way. You know, shut your mouth and listen, apprentice kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And, but with that, then to realize how much of human behavior is uh, inevitably mimicry, it must be, we take in, we put out. And then, so if you're going to take in all of these images that gradually over time change, so you're once were a little girl, now you're a little boy, well, you know, then then you're going to go there with that, right? You're going to mimic what you see. And I'm not advocating at the moment for a complete destruction of all screen-based learning, 
but you know, you really, we really should study these things pretty, pretty significantly because I think they have quite the opposite effect. They do not create intellects at all, but they definitely create people who can mimic stupidity when they watch it. And, and it, it, it also makes people who are unable to find a ground for themselves in their own lives. And that doesn't mean that you are thereby saved. What it means, for example, is that the same the sorts of thing about the re- kinds of realizations that that new parents begin to have about their own parents. Well, if you don't if you don't talk the way that your parents did, or if you don't think the way that your grandparents did about something, that doesn't mean you're right and they're wrong. All it means is you have somewhere else that you got everything that you are from. And now you have to figure out what that was so that you so that then you can begin to assess whether it's right or wrong. It's it's simpler and more natural to accept the way that you were made, not only male and female, like very obviously. But I think part of the reason that we have a, such an obviously in a certain sense stupid problem, am I male or female, is because we're already so rootless. I mean, practically, like who we are, what we are, how we behave, how we talk, et cetera. We're already so cut off or we're at least unaware if we're not cut off. We're unaware because we're much more aware of celebrity names and football scores and stuff like that. We're so unaware of all of that that we can't even get to the point where we're able to say, yes, I was wrong about that because we don't have like a simple two-point comparison. The way you do when you're like, wow, it's hard to stay up with a baby all night. I wonder what my mom had to go through. You know what I mean? (laughs) Here's one point in time. Here's another point in time. They're very similar. How does that work out, right? you're, You're instead, even in your own personal life, sucked through affect into all kinds of data points about all kinds of things, and you can't really make sense of them. We're, we're not We're not smart enough to do that. We're not smart enough. None of us is smart enough. So if we're cut off like that, that makes repentance that much harder because repentance comes from the point where I, where I make a simple two-point comparison. Here's what happened. Here's what should have happened. And then you can ask for forgiveness. Now, the fifth dubium is, is about forgiveness and on what basis forgiveness is given. And, and Francis is against the idea that you you kind of need to say these things out loud. I think the power of saying these things out loud rather than just you know coming to confession or saying them out loud, whether you're talking about individual confession or you're talking to the person or, or whatever, but actually saying things out loud is that it breaks through all of that pharisaical pretense that affect lives on, right? The Pharisees are the original affect guys. They've got a magisterium. They've got their own stuff that replaced the word of God, blah, blah, blah. This has all been done before. What are they obsessed with? Appearances. Incessant obsession with appearances. And they're always lying to Jesus. And they're always pretending to be somebody they're not. I mean, it's just so tiresome. You know, I I don't wonder if Jesus rolled his eyes because I don't think he did, you know, affect laden, you know, TV moves that we would do. Right, in front of other people. He probably had a lot more self-discipline than that. But it's just so tiresome to read the selections about them because it's like, you think he doesn't see through this? Like, how stupid do you think everybody is? And in a society that's laden with affect, people really are too stupid to see through those things if they themselves are governed by affect. So that I think that's the spiritual power of breaking away from these things is that you begin to break away from the dominance of affect in your own soul, which allows you to see when it's dominating other people. 
That's some good stuff. What's our time looking like? We are way over time. Yeah. So this is all bonus for the listeners right now. Well, there you go. <laughs> so in summary today, uh, Dr. Koontz, I think uh, we can say we've done a service to the world for uh, ecumenism to try to bridge the gap between Christians of goodwill who are perhaps concerned about the lies that the spirit of lawlessness sows in both the world and the church, that would be, you know, the visible Christian congregations where they gather in order to hear the revealed word of Christ, you know, which we have in the scriptures and which one does well to pay heed to as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And and to understand that the very definition of anti-Christ, anti-Christianity is to go at that pillar and foundation of the truth, uh, which is the revealed word of God that we assemble around, the teaching of the apostles and prophets, which Christ our Lord himself stamped with his approval for our learning that is useful for rebuking, cleaning, inwardly digesting, educating, driving, building, all these things, and does not return to him void, but rather enters you regenerates, inspires, calls forth from you the childhood cry of a sheep, right? I, you know, dear Jesus Christ, hear my plea. Now, all of this, you know, if you care about fighting against them, that spirit of lawlessness, wherever he sets up his shop and claims to speak for God and for Christ, but does not. Well, then we thank you for giving heed today. And and where there are old wounds between uh, the schisms of the past, uh, where synods haven't met to synod enough about synoding, and as a result, we all have our own, well, uh, let us pray that the Lord of the harvest uh, hears our cry and understands better what kind of, what manner of shepherding his church needs and may he send forth a generation of what preachers, uh, faithful men, families together, all willing to witness and testify to what they have found the scriptures say, and, and bring forth the fruit of the church in a way that, well, I would say, reforms the congregation you go to. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find this or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegian.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe. Become a patron and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. 
Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest.